I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. And today is February 19th. Uh, we're five days removed from Valentine's Day. And it might seem a bit early, but we are going to begin an Easter series um, titled A Testimony of the Cross. And each week uh, leading up to Easter, with the exception of one, you'll kind of count that there is going to be one missing week, and that'll be the week that Jews for Jesus is here. Uh, and I do want to encourage you to be here for that. On Palm Sunday, Jews for Jesus will be doing a presentation on uh, Christ and the Passover. And so I uh, just want to encourage you to be here for that. But each week, we'll be looking at a specific portion of Scripture from 2 Corinthians 2, chapters 2 through 5. And we're going to be looking through the lens of how the believer's life bears testimony of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. Now, we're going to begin today by looking at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 11, and our call to forgive and restore relationship with those who are repentant. Now, I want you to consider these names for a minute. Will Smith, Amber Heard, Adam Levine, Olivia Wilde, Roseanne Barr, Cristiano Ronaldo, Christy Teigen, Chris Cuomo, and Dr. Seuss. And I want you to think, what is it that those individuals actually have in common? So there's some actors and actresses in there. Some might say they are, some might say they aren't. There's singers in there, there's political commentator, and there is a child book character in there. The truth is, is that these are all individuals over the past two years, celebrities who are listed as canceled by the culture. There's actually a list of canceled celebrities. In fact, they're not alone. There are several others, and seemingly unforgivable mistakes fill the internet and social media. They're everywhere. People are canceled all the time. Now, canceling of culture can be for all kinds of reasons. Either you don't share in the ideals and the, the words and the, the expectations of a culture. It could be that you make a mistake. It could be that you're frankly just not liked. It could be that you responded inappropriately. Or for some reason, your choices don't line up with the culture. Now, it's interesting when you think about that for a minute. We have a, a culture that celebrates sexuality and promiscuity. And yet we have a culture that cancels for adultery. It's odd, isn't it? We have a culture that celebrates tolerance of all things and yet cancels any opinion that doesn't agree with theirs. See, our culture actually lacks mercy for anyone who might offend their sensibilities. And that's the culture that we live in. And we have to be careful that we also don't fall into that same temptation. We sometimes speak of culture as out there. 
but we reside within the culture that we speak of in the third person. It's easy for us to fall into that. As Christians, we have expectations of behavior. And we can easily be reminded of somebody's past mistakes and continue to walk with them as if those mistakes continue. But for those who've been canceled, there's no place to turn and there's no place to be redeemed. Except for the church. You see, simply by dealing with sin biblically, the church's response to the one who is repentant allows the redeeming love of Christ and His church and His work on the cross to be seen and experienced. The church is no more relevant today than it ever has been. It is always relevant. And the church has to recognize that we have a hope within a culture that is completely hopeless. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this idea of restoring forgiveness. It's a play on words. It's basically restored forgiveness, and then it's a forgiveness that brings restoration. So let's go ahead and stand together this morning. We're going to be diving into these first 11 verses. And it says this in verse 1. It says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain for those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused pain He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Lord, take this word, God, and plant it on our hearts. Father, move me aside this morning, and God, may it be your word that comes forth in power. Fill us, Lord. Steady us. And may we be a redeeming light that reflects the work of the cross as we live out your truth in the strength of your spirit. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So 
So what we're going to be specifically looking at today is that restoring a repentant person to fellowship testifies to the forgiveness offered through Christ on the cross. Restoring a repentant person to fellowship testifies the forgiveness offered through Christ on the cross. It's a restoring fellowship forgiveness. That's what we're looking at today. Now, it's important to have a little bit of background information why Paul is writing this. So, Paul had gone to the Corinthians in the first letter. He actually writes them. And some would say that this particular portion of Scripture is dealing with an unrepentant man who is in a relationship with his stepmother, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5. And it very well may be. Others have come behind that and said, well, we don't necessarily agree with that. We think that it's actually another person who has been quite severe towards Paul and towards the church. The truth is, is that whatever the result was, was that the individual who is actually being directed towards Paul in this particular case, who's been severe towards him, who's caused him pain, who's been in sin, is now at a place of repentance. He's now at a place where he has put forth, he's come forward, and he's repented of the sin that's at play. Now Paul is telling them here, that he is coming to them, he's actually going to write this letter to send to them, and he is not going to come at this time because he doesn't yet believe that they are all on the same page. And he says, the last time I came to you, which was after he sent the original letter, he comes to the Corinthians, and in that meeting of believers, there is a severe response to him calling the church to deal with sin appropriately. And so Paul actually looks here and he says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Paul was planning to come to them. But he says, not yet. For if I've caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? Now this is important. Because right above this, as he's laying out for them why he is not coming but writing, he says, but I call to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm actually not coming to you right now, because I realize that if I come, I'm simply actually making you do something that yet you may not be ready yet to do. But I'm calling you to it. And I'm going to actually be a barrier to your response to the sinful brother. That's what he's saying. And so he says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? He recognizes that coming is not going to actually be this opportunity for joy. He's still trying to work through these issues in the Corinthian church where the Corinthian church is still choosing to be disobedient to Christ. Now, he says beginning in verse 3, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. What he's saying is the last letter I sent to you, I was sending to you, Because I thought that you were in agreement with me. I thought that we believed in the authority of God and His Word. And he said, instead, I came and 
What was happening was I was actually rebuking you. We were coming to deal with an issue of sin within the church, but now I was actually rebuking the church and correcting the church. And so he says, I wrote this to you. Now what we're going to see in this passage is actually how restoration begins to testify to the forgiving work of the cross. And this is important. Seeing a believer who's actually come to a place where they've actually been disfellowshipped from the church, removed from the church because of unrepentant sin. Matthew 18 lays out a plan for that. 1 Corinthians 5 lays out a plan for that. 1 Timothy 5 lays out a plan for that. And what we're going to see is that the repentant believer is to be restored to fellowship within Christ's church. Now it's often referred to what we call church discipline. The problem with that phrase is the goal is not discipline. The goal is restoration. So if you want to call it a church discipline and restoration process, that's much more accurate what Scripture describes. The unrepentant brother or sister is not put out of fellowship for the purpose of them suffering some long-term punishment. It is that they're being put out in that punishment that they come to a returning or repentance before the Lord. The goal of that discipline process is restoration. And so in this particular case, we see the believer who has been disfellowshipped and now who is repentant. But Paul is actually describing something here. He's actually describing a restoration which testifies to the forgiving work of the cross. And the first way that occurs is that Paul discerns the best way to confront sin in love. He discerns the best way to confront sin in love. The gospel of forgiveness requires that we take sin severely. Now, Wayne Barber tells of a story that he was speaking on church discipline one day, and he shared in the congregation before the kids had left the service, he shared that they had become aware of a long-standing, unrepentant sin. They had addressed it as Matthew 18 had called them to, going one-to-one -one as a brother, taking some time, then going as a few to a brother, and then bringing it to the leadership of the church. And the leadership of the church, now after confronting the individual, and after allowing this time, was now going to be under just discipline. But he didn't explain that from the pulpit. He simply said, we have an individual today that we are, getting, we are going to put before you that we will be putting out of the church due to their sin. He said that his son was sitting amongst all the kids that were sitting in the corner. And he said it was crazy because all the kids started turning around going, they know. They know. They know. And each one of these kids became frightened that their sin was the thing that was being exposed that day. Now what happens with church discipline is that often in our own lives, when we deal with these things within the church, it makes us very aware of our own sin. But a process like this is not a witch hunt for somebody who sins because we are all sinners and we all sin. 
The issues that are being spoken of here is a heart of unrepentance towards that sin. The process that's laid out in Scripture is not one that says, listen, I did my first step by going one, and then I did my second step, and then I did my third step. I gave you three chances, and you're done. The church discipline process is one of discernment that uses those principles to guide us as we care and walk with the individuals. It means that, yes, we start by going one-on-one. And it means that we give them time to hear what was said and to allow the Lord to work on them. And then still, if unrepentant, yes, we go at two or three. And we give them time. And we seek the Lord. And we may go back to them to bring clarity and to speak again. And then we do it again if they're still unrepentant. We do that within the core of the body. And then if they still remain unrepentant, we then put them out. Not with a heart of permanency, but with a heart towards their coming to a place of repentance. We treat them as a pagan and a tax collector, which means as a pagan, they no longer have spiritual insight. As a tax collector, as one who is untrustworthy. Meaning, we're to see and to look at what they say with a level of of discernment. Is it truthful? Is it not truthful? We're not to actually take their spiritual insights anymore and apply them to our lives. We're to actually be the one actually providing and speaking the truth to them. It's important. And so Paul comes and he says, As I wrote to you so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So when Paul came to the church and said, hey, deal with this brother who you seem to be going, hey, we are the most loving people in the world because we're tolerating everything. I'm telling you you're wrong. I'm actually telling you you need to deal with this brother in sin. Whether it's the one that is speaking severely, whether it's the incestuous man, whatever it is, you have somebody who is unrepentant in sin and you are celebrating that sin rather than dealing with that sin. You are tolerating that sin rather than dealing with that sin. And so he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. When we deal with sin in another person's life and we go to them, it should be with much affliction and anguish. Meaning this, that my heart should break for that individual. I've been a part of three church discipline processes in my life. I've been a part of many that were not done to completion, meaning they started and the person came to repentance. And I've witnessed one very poorly way that it was done. The point is it takes discernment to address sin in a person's life. I don't walk up to Robin and say, hey, I saw you sinning there, Robin, and uh, just want to let you know you're, you're going to hell. 
and unless you change your ways, you're off to hell. Actually, I discern the best way. Sometimes that means that I come with a gentle spirit and, and I, I walk through the way that Jesus did with the woman at the well. He didn't look right at her and say, you are lying to me. You're sleeping with a man that's not your husband and you've been married so many other times. Sometimes you do as Jesus did where he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Either way, we have to approach the movement of directing or speaking the truth in love with empathy and wisdom. I need to remember first that I'm a sinner too. And but for the grace of God, so go I. And so it requires, when we are dealing with sin and we're confronting sin in one another's lives, it requires empathy and it requires wisdom. Both those things are vital. And at the heart of discernment is empathy and wisdom. It's seeing the totality of what is at work, not with an eye for just getting out what is wrong with the individual, but with an eye towards restoration. What's going to allow the greatest opportunity for repentance and restoration. See, Christ's forgiveness takes sin seriously. We can't forget that. And that means we are called to deal with unrepentant sin. It is what the Lord calls us to. Ephesians 4, 25-27 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says that we are to speak the truth in love to one another. For what purpose does it say? It says for the building up. It says that speak the truth in love so that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I ask you, who do you have that speaks the truth into your life other than your spouse? We need people who are not a part of our family that speak the truth in love to us. We need it. We need people who are going to, to speak to those areas of our lives that are hidden, that are broken, that are sinful. And I want to encourage you to allow people to speak the truth in love into your life. We're told in Scripture that the wounds of a righteous friend can be trusted. It's hard, isn't it? We need to use wisdom then when we go to others. And we need to walk with empathy. It doesn't mean that we're not direct. It doesn't mean that we're not bold. It doesn't mean that sometimes we're not forceful. But it means that we walk in with empathy and wisdom as we discern the best way to help bring about restoration. The best way that will produce repentance.
Secondly, the first is that we need to discern the best way to confront the sin in love. But then secondly, restoration, which testifies to the forgiving work of the cross, restores the person who is genuinely repentant through forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, these principles definitely apply to those that we're forgiving in our personal lives that may not be put out by the church. But as we're talking about the church and this passage, these aspects of restoration are vital. It says, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Paul's saying, listen, I encourage you to do what's right. This isn't about me. This is about that the person who remains unrepentant in your fellowship is actually offending you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So he's saying, it's done its work. You've put him out of the body. The person is now repented. He's now moving forward, trying to, to, to walk in righteousness with Christ. And he said, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So restoration which testifies the cross is a restoration which restores the person who is genuinely repentant through forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, we can talk about forgiveness a lot, and I don't want to go down a side road here. We're not talking about how you deal with a person who you forgive, but who is unrepentant. That's different. A person who is unrepentant in the body of Christ that's on the outside, we deal with them as Scripture says. The call is still to forgive, but we're not reconciled to them. We still hand them and release them to the Lord, but we're not reconciled to them. But when a person is repentant, the call is called for forgiveness and reconciliation, and this is the act of restoration. So the word forgive here is the word charismai. And charismai means to show favor or to be gracious towards. It carries with it the idea of pardoning someone or releasing the guilt of the offense caused. So it's to no longer hold them against them. It's to release them from their offense. That's what it means to forgive. For the unrepentant, we release to the Lord. For the repentant, we release to the Lord. And then in releasing to the Lord, we move into that next step, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So when we forgive someone, we are doing just as Christ did for us on the cross. And the only way to forgive is through the cross. Genuine, true forgiveness only comes through the cross. Our flesh is simple. Our flesh is selfish. And the only way to fully deal with that, the only way, is by allowing Christ to work in our hearts to do it. Our culture's forgiveness is different. It's blind ignorance. It pretends it didn't exist. I need to just move on. 
Get past it. But forgiveness says, God, I too am a sinner, and my sin has brought obstruction and offense to others. And I too have been released to you for your grace, and I too can release them to you for their grace. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what Christ did for us. So when we forgive somebody, that's what we're doing. We're pardoning them. We're canceling the debt. It goes on and it says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We become representatives for Christ when we take sin and offenses and we forgive those individuals, specifically those who are repentant. But all, we're demonstrating the same love of Christ. We're nailing those offenses to the cross and we're pardoning. We're canceling the debt. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 1, 19-20 adds, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what's being displayed when we forgive and we restore? It is the blood of the cross, the work of the cross, the forgiveness granted and the reconciliation given. So what is reconciliation then? A forgiveness is pardoning, releasing, and reconciliation? Well, it actually is comforting. Notice what it says. It says here, to forgive and to comfort. That word is parakaleo. And parakaleo carries it with it, the idea of coming alongside someone. It literally means to encourage or console. It is what Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, when it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What do we do with the repentant brother or sister in Christ? We're to come alongside of them. We're to encourage them. We're to say to them, listen, I too am like you. I too am in a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. And I'll walk with you. I will stand with you. I will bear up with you. We will walk through this together. It doesn't abandon. One of the great dangers of not doing church discipline is that for the person who is unrepentant that is put out of the body, there is no clarity of where they return to. When a church brings discipline to one of those within the fellowship, part of that discipline 
should always have a process of restoration attached to it. For clarity, for the person to know, where do I return to? What do I do if I am repentant? Who do I reach out to? It's vital. Now I want to say this. with caution. All church discipline will seem harsh. All church discipline will seem harsh if you're the one on the receiving end. And when you are stirred up in your own spirit as you watch it because of your own sin, it is to be a warning to us that we too are to live repentant lives. I've seen many times where people see the church discipline enacted and they don't want any part of it. They're like, that's just too harsh. They leave. They'll get out of a church. But God has actually instructed it and commanded it. Not because it's easy, but because God cares about that person who is walking and remaining in unrepentance. And God cares about his church being warned of the effects of unrepentant sin. And so he says, comfort, come alongside. This word comfort is the very essence of what we see that Christ did for us in Romans 5, 8 through 10, which says, but God shows his love for us in the while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Restoration is not that the individual comes back perfectly. It's that you're walking alongside them because they're not perfect in the way that you're not perfect. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him through the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. We're dying to sin. Now, I would really ask this question. How many of us in this week went through the week without sinning? The truth is we are all in the process of dying to sin and living to Christ, are we not? Repentance is not perfection. Repentance is the position in which we place ourselves before Jesus. The second word here is reaffirm, and it's kairu in Greek. And reaffirm means to confirm or to validate. It's to show something as real. It's showing loving forgiveness by restoring them to the privileges of fellowship within the body. Given the sin, it may not be the restoration of position, but it is restoration to serving the Lord. Wayne Barber puts it this way, do you really love him? Then prove it to him. Go to him, come alongside him, help him get his feet back. Maybe he's an elder or a deacon and he's committed adultery and now he can't serve in that way anymore. That's all right. He can be used someplace else. Take him and help him understand that. And yes, the consequence will be there. God's mercy will help him bear up under it, but my goodness, don't just kick him out. Help him understand Help him get his feet back on the ground. That's what restoration looks like. 
comforting and reaffirming love. It means welcoming back with open arms. I'm so glad you're here. No longer holding the past over that person's head. Years ago, I was in a meeting and we were dealing with an individual who was in adultery, active adultery. And I was sitting with a leader in our church that had years before gone through divorce and Prior to that meeting, I had looked at him and I said, I'd like you to go with me. And he said, I don't think I'm the right guy. I've been divorced. I said, yeah. The Lord is speaking and using you. We got into this meeting. And it was beautiful. This man began to speak and he said, you don't understand who I'm married to. You don't know how unlovable this person is. It was one of the few times in my life where I was absolutely speechless. I know that probably is hard for you to imagine. (laughs) But I had no words, and I believe to this day it was the Lord kept my mouth closed. Because as I dropped my head from the side of me, this man who had sat quietly the whole time looked up and said, but I do. I know what it's like. And he said, I separated from my wife. And he said, she was addicted to drugs and she was involved in all kinds of things. I was encouraged to go back to her and to love her. He said, for the next nine years of my life, I loved her. And she chose to leave. And then he said these words. He said, but God has blessed my life because I was faithful to that woman. But more than that, I was faithful to loving her the way that Jesus had called me to. And he said, the marriage that God has given me now is unexplainable. And it is joy-filled, and I can't even imagine how God could bless my life. He felt unworthy. Oh, but God had a purpose. And he could speak directly to the circumstances of this man. Now, the beauty of that is that we come alongside, and this man who was divorced had not been in sin. But he was able to speak to an issue of sin in another man's life. And the enemy loves to take our past and condemn us, does he not? And for the one who is repentant, condemnation is near. It is vital that we comfort and reaffirm our love for them. To let them know that they are restored to the privileges of the body of Christ which reflects his glory. The third thing that happens here, the third part of a restoration that testifies to the cross is that it exposes our willingness to obey Christ for the sake of the repentant and his church. It exposes our willingness to obey Christ for the sake of the repentant and his church. 
Now it says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, restoration of the repentant person through forgiveness is a command. It's not optional. He doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it, do it. Now, I do want to stop and say that repentance is something that we have to evaluate, that a church leadership evaluates, we look at, we discern. And part of the way that repentance bears it out in somebody's life is by them bearing the fruit of that repentance, no longer walking in those same sin. It is that, that we then watch and we wait. This is not an overnight process. Now, Jesus knows our heart. So his restoration is often quick. Now, I don't mean restoration to what we once were, but we can experience that comfort and we can experience that reaffirmation of love very quickly. But the Lord has given us something different. He's given us the Spirit to be in agreement. And there are times when the Spirit is not in agreement. When somebody says, I repent. And there will be times where you're like, I don't think you have. And there are times when the bearing fruit of that repentance is not there. Those are the measures that God has given us. And so we don't rush We stand and we move with discernment at the pace that the Lord has given. But when it is determined that that person is repentant, and the way that we often do that today in church discipline is we put together a process for that individual before we bring them back into the fellowship. And if they can come underneath that process of discipleship and of confession and of work, then they're brought back into the fold but it exposes our willingness. Are we willing to do it for the sake of the repentant and the sake of his church, which also includes us? And he says it's a command. For that person that is repentant, we are to restore. This is why Paul says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. He's saying, now I had to challenge you to be obedient to do what was right in the first place. Now I'm having to challenge you again to do what's right now. So can you do the hard thing, the severe thing, and then can you do the harder and more humble thing by restoring? It's kind of what Jonah had, didn't he, right? Isn't it what Jonah was upset about when he went to Nineveh? He's sitting there and he's like, hey, I'm coming. These guys are going to kill me. And he goes, don't send me to that place. They're all going to destroy me. And so he goes and he's like, okay, Lord, I've seen you deliver me. Now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to proclaim that they're all going to die if they don't repent. And then they repent. And what does Jonah do? Jonah sulks. He's like, are you kidding me, God? I said this was going to happen. Now I'm a false prophet and I'm going to die. We kind of get like that. We get pushed to do the hard thing. We kind of want to wait a while before we actually go do the other hard thing. 
The Lord's saying, listen, this is about my grace and my love for you. If a person who has been put out repents and believes, welcome them back. Humble yourselves and forgive them and reconcile. Luke 17, 3-4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See, our willingness to deal with sin severely and then restore the repentance through forgiveness exposes our own heart. It actually says whether we understand our own depravity before God. And the truth is, is it also lets us know whether we're coming underneath the Lord's authority or not. Charles Hodge points out, obedience to legitimate authority is one of the evidences of Christian sincerity. A rebellious, self-willed, disobedient spirit is a strong indication of an unsanctified heart. As the Corinthians had proved themselves obedient to the apostles' directions, and as the offender was truly penitent, the object of his letter, both as it related to them and to him, had been attained, and therefore there was no reason for the continuance of the punishment. The discipline had had its sanctifying work in the individual. And he's saying, forgive. So Paul's forgiven this person, and so should the Corinthians. Paul's saying, if my offense, if this person came strong at me, and I can forgive them, you too can forgive them. And he reminds them that they are in the presence of Christ and Christ's authority meaning that Christ is watching and that Christ himself is the one who will do it in you even when you struggle. So why is the restoration then through forgiveness so important? Well, first, it's for the repentant person's sake. Verse 7 says that without forgiveness and comfort, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What Paul is describing is a hopelessness and a hopeless people give John Calvin points out that there's nothing more dangerous than to give Satan a chance of reducing a sinner to despair. Whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. That's true in all forms of forgiveness, is it not? When we have unforgiving hearts towards people, Satan gets in there. And when we have unforgiveness towards somebody who needs forgiveness and is repentant, we bring hopelessness and despair. You ever been gone to somebody who you seek to apologize, you recognize the offense that you've caused them, and you go, and they want nothing to do with you? It's a hopeless feeling, is it not? Now imagine that in the body of Christ. the very ones who we are to gather together with, who are to be unified in Christ and experience his hope and joy, the very ones who are turning us away. Second is for the church's sake, our own sake as believers. Verse 11 says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. A lack of forgiveness in our own heart is an opportunity for Satan to run rampant. 
First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy that's looking to devour your soul, and one of the best ways that he does that is through a heart of unforgiveness. Luke 22, verse 31 through 32, we're told that before the death of Jesus, Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Whoa! Understand that we have an enemy that is prowling around looking for someone to devour and he wants to sift you. He wants to put you through a strainer. He wants to shake you. But Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And listen to this. Knowing that Peter was going to fail, he says, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Forgiveness and being offering forgiveness and restoration to the repentant pushes the enemy away, it undermines his schemes, it undermines his plans, but for those who lack forgiveness, the enemy grabs hold and sifts. The enemy looks to devour. And he creates in us a legalistic, hardened, stiff-necked heart. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is going to take time. It doesn't mean that we have to work through a process individually. But what Paul is saying here is this individual can be restored corporately. 1 Timothy 5, 19-22 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. When we deal with an unrepentant sinner in the body of Christ, it should cause us to take stock of our own life. It should cause fear. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that church discipline will often seem harsh because it invokes fear in our own lives going, I'm a sinner. But what Paul's saying here is, that's a good thing. Because it makes us now aware of the sin in our own life so that we don't get stuck in the same place of unrepentance and not seeing sin with the severeness that God does. You see, when we forgive and restore, it is for the sake of the repentant one, but it's also for the sake of the believer in his church. As we look and understand this idea of restorative forgiveness, what ultimately occurs is that Christ himself is exalted. And what people see is a church that is reflecting the very love and mercy and grace that Christ displayed on the cross. One that had walked away and turned from him, but one who is now turning towards him and being received with open arms. 
You see how our restoring forgiveness proclaims the cross of Christ? And my hope is as we move closer to Easter, we see that the believer's life, the church, reflects the very glory and nature of our good, good Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider communion right now, and we prepare our own hearts for this, may we just take these moments and be reminded of how you have restored and redeemed us. Father, if there is someone that we need to to forgive in our heart this morning, may we do that. If there's somebody who we we need to to make things right with, may we do that. Father, if somebody is repentant and we see them as such, may we come alongside them and comfort them and reaffirm our love for them. May it be that no repentant person within this church or within the greater church finds despair as they seek your grace. May it be your church never is deceived by the schemes that grab root through a heart of unforgiveness. But God, may we glorify you as we demonstrate forgiveness and restoration as you gave towards us on the cross. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.